Informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. And welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Praise be to God. It's so good to be here with you today on this Good Friday. Yes, it is Good Friday, April 7th. 2023 instead of a saint of the day i want to read you this sermon from father andre jean hamen from 1874 one of the french supplicants a professor of dogmatics and author of several spiritual and historical works he says for good friday let us transport ourselves in spirit to the holy mountain of calvary At the foot of the cross beside Mary, she practices there in unaltered patience. She stands up in the midst of the horrible tempest like a rock surrounded by waves, which beat against it without causing it to fall. Neither the abyss into which she is plunged by her grief, nor the spectacle of death, nor the fury of man, nor the rage of demons is able to cast her down. Her demeanor is full of resolution and courage. Without allowing a complaint to escape her, she adores the designs of God in silence and submits to them. Let us look at ourselves in this beautiful mirror of patience and let us be confounded. It requires so little to cast us down, to make us lose heart, to excite complaints and murmurings. The humility of Mary is here equal to her patience A mother whose son is suffering capital punishment is ashamed to show herself. She is afraid lest the ignominy of her son should rebound upon her, and she hides herself. But Mary shows herself, and shows herself even at the foot of the cross. It is there she awaits all the contempt, all the insults that can be heaped upon her, and is happy to be able to taste with Jesus the chalice of humiliation and to drink it down to the dregs. What a lesson for us. Mary teaches us the spirit of sacrifice, knowing that the designs of God is that Jesus would die to save the world. She enters with her whole soul into the divine decrees. Heavenly Father, she says, Take thy sword, strike the victim, tear my entrails, wrench out my heart by taking from me my beloved son. I resign myself to it for the sake of thy glory and for the salvation of the world. What a sublime example of that spirit of sacrifice. Praise be to God. Let's make this our meditation on this Good Friday. Why is today considered Good Friday? Well, Good Friday is the liturgical commemoration of Calvary itself, the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the liturgy, the vestments used in each particular detail of its ancient rites communicate the grief, sorrow, and mournfulness of this moment of our redemption in the heart of every good Christian. Praise be to God. I, I just love Good Friday. It's easily the saddest day of the year. However, even though it's the saddest day of the year, this is the day that is most beautiful. Because you recognize, oh, Felix Colpa. Oh, happy fault. Oh, happy fault that won for us so wonderful, so great a Savior. So make it to Holy Mass today. 
make it to, or rather you can't really make it to Holy Mass because there is no Holy Mass. It's the one day a year in which Holy Mass is not offered. This is the day in which we do not receive Holy Communion. I think most priests will, will consecrate a lot of hosts the day before on Holy Thursday, on Monday, Thursday, and then on Good Friday, they distribute the host from the day before. However, it has traditionally not been done. Traditionally, on Good Friday, nobody would receive communion. Not even the priest would receive communion. This is an ancient practice, and it was a deprivation of our Lord, which is, you might say, why would you do that? That's so sad. Exactly. Because we commemorate in the most special way the death of our Lord when Our Lady did not have her beloved son there by her side, he whom she loved above all things, and she did not have him any longer. And for that reason, I may implore you to try to avoid receiving Holy Communion today if you can, if you are able to do so. Now, I was thinking about doing the readings for today, but then I realized the readings for today is the entirety of the Passion Narrative of, of the Gospel from St. John, and I was like, ah! know if we have time to read the entirety of the passion narrative that would be a little much i would say so instead i wanted to read to you the one that sermon for today and then two i want to talk a little bit about holy saturday now holy saturday traditionally that was the easter vigil typically there's no mass on that day as well and you have the easter vigil mass and the easter vigil mass and the old rite used to be done and it did not fulfill your Sunday obligation, did not fill your Easter obligation. And so you would go to Mass on Holy Saturday for the Easter Vigil. And then again, you would go to Mass a second time for Easter Sunday. Now, let me implore you, if you would, to spend some time with our Lord on Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Don't go out with friends. Don't hang out. Don't go get dinner and eat some desserts. Don't have a good time. Don't don't have a good time. You may think, why would you say that? Why would you say such a horrible thing? Well, the reason why is that on this day, these, these most venerable days of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, these are the days in which there is there should be a sadness. It's right and just to have a certain sadness. And we should not flee from this sadness. There's a time for joy and a time for sadness. I think in, often in our current age, uh, we are afraid to be sad. We're afraid to mourn. But remember, our Lord said, Blessed are he who mourn for the sake of righteousness, for he shall be comforted. But if we never mourn, does that mean our Lord will never comfort us? If we just push down and just reject it. I know how many times have you been to a funeral where everybody talks about, let's have a celebration of life. Did Our Lady have a celebration of life on Holy Saturday? On Good Friday, when she walked home, was she having a celebration of life? Or was she mourning over the death of her son? I would implore you to, to imagine that. Maybe pray to stop at Mater today. Make it to Station of the Cross. If you don't have access to any of these things, if you're saying, I'm busy, I have to work, unfortunately. Oh, tr one, try to get off of work as soon as you can and find a church that's doing some beautiful things. And if all else fails, pull out your rosary, pray the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, pray the seven sorrows of Our Lady, pray the stations of the cross, 
Meditate today above every other day, today and tomorrow. Meditate upon these great mysteries. Then maybe read the Passion Narratives. Read the Passion Narrative of St. John. Read the Passion Narrative of Mark and Luke and Matthew. Read those Passion Narratives and, and meditate upon them. Think about why is it that this happened? Why did our Lord desire that he give up it all for me? Now, coming up at 15 past the hour, we're talking to Father Gregory Pine. Father Gregory Pine with the Order of Preachers, the Order of St. Dominic, the Dominican Friars. He will be talking about the virtue of prudence. It's a very excellent conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. It was uh, very good. We enjoyed talking to him. And this is going to be the conversation about prudence. Now, let's begin with prayer. We're going to invoke this the Holy Ghost especially during the month of April, a month dedicated to the Holy Ghost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirits, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Oremos, O God, who taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now instead of reading the gospel, I want to tell you a little bit about Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday brings us to the silent repose of Christ's body in the tomb, where the church mourns most profoundly the death of our Savior, culminating in the solemn and triumphant Mass of the Easter Vigil. Now the Christ on the cross, Good Friday, is covered in malediction for us, having died on an infamous gibbet, who is left as guilty to the irrevocable justice of God, and no less to the wrath of hell and to the hatred of his enemies. He is dead, and all of humanity is dead with him, for which as death came in the beginning to original justice and innocence through the contamination of Adam's sin, so now in Christ, through Christ's sin, through Christ, sin and the old law die, making themselves by means of the faith participants of the expiation, and of the sacrifice of Jesus. Therefore he is dead, as the apostle teaches, because of our sins, and is risen in order to destroy its effects, reestablishing us in grace and justice and the rights of the glory of heaven. The Easter of Jesus, therefore, is our Easter. Because if in the evening of the Paris Kaviv, all of us die with him on the cross, that this night in him we rise to new life according to God. The tradition of keeping the vigil from Saturday evening to the Sunday morning of Easter is very ancient. Tertullian speaks of it as a law above all else that no one could be excused from it. It was only in the late Middle Ages that the ceremonies were finally anticipated in the afternoon and then to the morning of Holy Saturday until finally being brought back to the evening. The most ancient description of the Eastern vigil occurs in St. Justin Martyr in his Apology, in which baptism and the Mass that followed are identical to the rites described here. They followed a solemn and public fast by both the catechumens and the entire Christian community, a fast that in that time could, be, could not be identified with anything other than the fast that preceded the solemnity of the Lord's resurrection. The sacred ceremony which is about to unfold before our eyes expresses with astonishing brilliance and colors the tremendous sacred reality of Christ's resurrection and of the church and consists of five distinct parts, the blessing of the new fire and the grains of frankincense 
the Paschal Candle, the Prophecies, the Litany, and the Solemn Mass of the Easter Vigil. Originally, except for baptism, the original Panushias, or the Vigil, which in the 3rd century sanctified weekly the night between Saturday and Sunday, did not have to include rites very different from what the Roman Missal prescribed for the Easter Vigil. Before the 5th century, when monastic piety created what is now known to us as the night office, or matins in the breviary, only the vigil office, the solemnity of the Easter, was used in the vigils for Sunday, anniversaries of martyrs, in the cemetery crypts, and the titular churches of Rome. Therefore, the ceremonies that are today found in the Missal for the Easter Vigil represents and preserves intact the primitive form of the night office, or matins, according to the ancient Roman usage. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. This is a beautiful saying. This is something we should meditate upon today. I want you to pay attention, to listen and pay attention dearly today. If you make it to the Easter Vigil, I want to know about it. Let me know on Monday how your Triduum went. I want to know, did you go to the Good Friday Liturgy and the Good Holy Saturday Liturgy and Easter Sunday Liturgy? Did you do all of the above? I'd be very interested to hear about it on Monday. Here's the thing. These sacred ceremonies are so beautiful, so wonderful, that I want you to pay attention very carefully to every action because there is nothing superfluous in the Mass. Nothing superfluous. The Easter fire, the symbol of the light in the new world, the darkness that, that the evil cannot comprehend. I think of the introduction to the Gospel of St. John, in John chapter 1. It's often known as the, the last gospel. It's known as the last gospel because it's read at the end of Mass. And in that last gospel, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And without him was made nothing that was made. In him was a life, and the life was a light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What a beautiful saying. And the darkness did not comprehend it. This is a beautiful thing. Whenever we look on the Easter fire, recognize that Christ is that light. Christ is the light in which the darkness did not comprehend it. In fact, the exact opposite is true. In fact, our Lord conquered the darkness. He, by his light, made the darkness bright. Let's meditate upon this, especially on Holy Saturday, and recognize on Good Friday today that the coming light is about to be here. Hey, Donnie, in what gospel do we find the Hail Mary prayer? The gospel of Luke. Do we worship Mary? No. What do we do? Ask her to pray for us. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Is the very contemporary and popular idea that a faith alone salvation, which occurs by repenting of sins and asking Jesus in one's heart, sufficient to enter and warrant heaven upon death? I say, no, it's not. Many evangelicals will say, just follow the Romans road, which is four verses snatched out of the book of Romans, and when followed, heaven is promised. Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, the Bible. The Gospels, nor the Epistles, nor the Apostolic and early Church Fathers ever wrote anything 
like this mechanical approach. Secondly, the marriage experience. After wrongdoing and temporary departure from your family, does a simple one-time, hey honey, I'm really sorry, bring you back into the family? And thirdly, teaching at the Catholic Church, water baptism, loving God and neighbor, which is displayed yes. by consistent acts of charity while maintaining a perseverant hope of heaven is the surest way to God's eternal presence. And my pesky comeback, that Romans road is presumptuous and significantly dumbs down the holy value and price of salvation. And remember, that Romans road has some potholes. And welcome back to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca, and it's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. It's always good to be here on Catholic Radio. You know, it's a lot of talk about making good decisions. A lot of talk about being prudent. The word is thrown around all the time. You hear people say, that wasn't a very prudent thing to do. Or, and, and they kind of just throw this around, and no one really knows what exactly we're talking about. And so I was thinking about this the other day, and I thought, you know what? Well, you should invite Father Gregory Pine on. He wrote a book on prudence. And, you know, there is uh, someone on Twitter who is who is uh, coming after some of Father Gregory Pine's uh, comments on other things. And I was like, why are people coming after Father Gregory Pine? He's he's very, very nice guy. I don't know if Father Gregory remembers. I actually had the privilege of meeting him back when I was a novice at St. Gertrude's uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio. But I was like, this, this, that's crazy. So I was like, let's invite Father Gregory on, and we'll talk about prudence, and it'll be a good time. So good morning to you, Father Gregory. Hey, good morning to you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, your book I was really surprised by because I was actually expecting a theological and philosophical treatise uh, on prudence, but it is much, much more accessible than that. I was actually, I'm like, I should buy a bunch of these because I have a lot of friends who are very much into the self-help culture. I know you explicitly said this is not a self-help book, but it reads uh, in that style and in the in a good way. And I think it's much better than things like even 12 Rules for Life by uh, Jordan Peterson and those things. Uh, people are very into that right now. And those things I find to be so lacking, and I find this to be grounded very much on Catholic tradition. So let's start there. Why did you write this book? Um, so I wrote this book because the publisher asked me to write this book. <laughs> That's a great reason. <laughs> yeah. Why did that they foresee the, that as a good reason occasion. to do it? Yeah. yeah. Um, in the background there, I had been, you know, like reading about, thinking about, speaking about prudence some, uh, because I had taken a course at the Dominican House of Studies, and part of that course afforded us the opportunity to read certain passages from a, a series of questions that St. Thomas wrote pretty early on in his career, and two of them treated um, conscience and then the kind of background principles to conscience. And I read them, and I was astonished. I was like, this is great, because people talk about conscience often, uh, but you don't get the sense for the kind of thoughtful, virtuous background to conscience. A lot of the times it's treated as if there were this kind of inviolable sanctuary in your interior life, and you just make willy-nilly decisions from within that sanctuary, and then no one can say anything for or against. And I was like, that seems crazy. And then reading about conscience, and then the background principles led me to prudence, and uh, yeah, glory ensued. Awesome. And I was very interested in how you started it off. I thought it was very uh, wise to start with happiness. Because really, I mean, that is the the question that everybody's looking for. And he started off, and I felt like I was being personally attacked, Father, 
Uh, you said here, I do not think that my experience is an isolated one. Instead of seeking to be truly happy in arranging our lives accordingly, many of us have chosen to be busy. It's become the default response in any conversation. How are you? Busy, so busy, crazy busy. But upon hearing this response for the umpteenth time in a day, the question that naturally arises is why? And I felt personally attacked there, Father. I, whenever people tell me, oh, how are you doing? I'm like, <laughs> oh, you know, I'm, I'm very busy, but praise be to God, I'm, I'm alive. I'm, I'm here. Uh, and I was like, oh, man, Father's calling me out here. So tell me, uh, can you expound upon this? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think that there are, there are people in the world who are legitimately busy, and that's uh, inevitable, I suppose, given their state in life or given their particular work arrangement. Uh, but I think a lot of us, yeah, we just we choose to be busy because it's easier to fill your time than it is to confront the vacuousness of your experience of life. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of us, and it's not like everybody, and I don't want to sound too down on life, um, but I think a lot of us are somewhere in and amongst sad, lonely, and anxious um, to various degrees or extent. And that's a difficult reality to live with, and it's especially difficult reality to search the depths of um, because, yeah, because it's uncomfortable. Um, and to come in living contact with your own poverty as a human being, and there I just mean your kind of lack of existential thickness, you know, that we as human beings just can't bear very much reality, um, it's difficult. And so I think a lot of us just choose to do a bunch of stuff because it kind of buoys us up and it convinces us that yes, we matter and our lives have amounted to something. And now we can report back to all those who ask us all the many accomplishments that we have amassed. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not saying that doing things is bad, it certainly isn't. Um, but doing things out of a spirit of, you know, sadness, loneliness, anxiety can sometimes be only a partial response to what is in fact a bigger question. And so I thought just, you know, set up the book with that kind of uh, problematic so as to yeah just bring it home because I think that a lot of people identify with that yeah and I I personally definitely did I was thinking about that I was like wow it's so true because you also give the example you said uh, when a friend cancels our evening plans he said I immediately seize the opportunity to catch up on house cleaning chat with my brother and watch a show am I efficient or just terrified of being alone and I was thinking to myself I was like okay that is a good question that I should ask myself because I am uh, exactly being spoken to here when I'm reading that. I'm like, yeah, I fill my time 100%, and sometimes I lie to myself and say I am just being efficient. I'm just trying to get as much done as possible. I got a lot to do. Um, but really, uh, like Joseph Pieper in his book, Leisure and the Basis of Culture, uh, we really should uh, set aside time for leisure. And in that, same, in that same vein, you also mentioned Viktor Frankl who I thought was uh, is excellent. Uh, I read his book, A Man's Search for Meaning, uh, back in college. And it's a very interesting point because we talk about the end of our lives in terms of what what are we living for? And he comes up with this, this uh, psychiatric method called logotherapy, which I thought was very interesting that he uses the word logo. Just immediately you think of logos. You think of uh, John uh, chapter 1. And I'm thinking, okay, this is very interesting to me. So why did you include Viktor Frankl here? What is the purpose of that? Yeah, I, th I think um, a lot of happiness discourse can be misleading because it focuses on positive emotions. And I don't think that positive emotions are the best barometer to judge your own kind of spiritual meteorology. Um, that is a weird mixed metaphor. And <laughs> I think that 
positive emotions kind of come and go. Uh, and, and people have a variety of ways of describing or even distinguishing among different experiences um, like of happiness or joy or pleasure. You know, you hear all kinds of definitions. What I'm just trying to focus in on is like at a certain kind of animal level or basic level, we can have positive emotions and that's great. But I think that we have to shoot beyond the mark if we're going to expect anything like positive emotions that will, you know, kind of endure. So if you say, I want to have positive emotions, then you just grab a fistful of Sour Patch Kids and just go to it. No problem. Um, but then your tongue starts to bleed because you've had so many. And then you begin to wonder, is there more in life than Sour Patch Kids? Um, and so, you know, positive psychologists will often distinguish between what they call like pleasure happiness and meaning happiness. So if you make all of your judgments on the basis of pleasure happiness, well, then you're going to miss out on a lot of life. Like, why would you welcome a child into the world? Because the child is going to torture you for the better part of 23 years um, by any number of means, you know, by waking up in the middle of the night, by emoting in its adolescence, by asking you to help pay for college, you know, et cetera. So that child's going to play serious demands. But that's also one of the most meaningful things or life enriching things that you could possibly do is welcome children into the world. Um, so if you make the judgment on the basis of positive emotion, you'll end up missing out and then limiting really or circumscribing your happiness to a very narrow scope. Whereas if you say, I want to do something worthwhile, I want to do something good, noble, dignified, beautiful even, uh, then you come to discover that, yeah, there are going to be negative emotions, but there will be positive emotions. And when you arrive at the end of your, at the end of your life, as this kind of longitudinal Harvard study has shown, You'll, you'll be most enriched by the people with whom you have spent it. So I think that the whole point of that was to just uh, break the concept of happiness out of some of its tired or weather-worn kind of uh, ruts that, uh, that the conversation has observed in recent years and then just, uh, yeah, just, just bring it into the fullness or at the very least a, a bigger scope. Yes, for sure. And you also bring up this idea in the same vein about, about trying harder. And I let's think about that, too, because you're saying, OK, we we have this idea that we need to have a proper end in mind. OK, now we have figured out what our proper end is. Maybe uh, we say, OK, I, I desire I'm doing this for God or maybe I'm doing this to make money. I'm doing this for some reason. Whatever that reason is, I'm doing it for that reason. Uh, we should purify that, obviously, and have that be for for good things and not for things that are means. Um, St. Thomas very clearly talks about. Uh, money being a means rather than an end in itself. But he gets to the question, you get to the question of try harder as an error. And we see that even in the church, this uh, bootstrap theology or white knuckle Catholicism, where I just got to try harder. I just got to cling as tight as I can. Your knuckles get really tight. And, they, and when you cling on something so hard, you your hands are getting very clammy and you can only cling on something so hard for so long before your hands just slip and you use this as an as a uh, to talk about people who are trying to give up certain things, whether it be pornography, whether it be uh, trying to fast, whether it be trying to diet. Um, tell me about this idea of a error of a trying harder. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this while well, I was thinking about this recently, uh, apropos of a conversation with an individual who confronted me on the point. They're like, "You preach too much about sadness and anxiety and loneliness." I was like, "Might be true," um, but also. I think it's important to, one, validate people in their present experience of life, because I think in a lot of Christian circles, the way that 
like happiness is described, it makes it sound like as a Christian, you should be happy. John 10, 10, you know, fiend. Um, and if you're not happy, it's because you're doing something wrong. And to address the fact that you're doing something wrong, you should try harder, which I think is a deadly cycle that ends in atheism. Uh, because one, sometimes life is sad and anxiety inducing and lonely. And I think an adequate response to that is to be sad and anxious and lonely. But the good news isn't that you as a human being should be better at adjusting to your life situation and managing your emotions so that way they better correspond to the promised abundant life of John 10 10. No, the point is that Christ comes to save us from our sins, right? From sin, from vice, from death, from our bondage to the devil. And that as human beings, that takes time, right? So we live in time and in time, things take time to unfold. Uh, so it's going to be a matter of pilgrimage or wayfaring or making our way gradually into the fullness of life. Uh, and in that process, we can do certain things to consent to and cooperate with God's gift of himself, but he's the initiator. And so that really changes the disposition with which we approach the whole, you know, the whole matter at, at hand or at stake, namely uh, to try to be attentive to what he is doing in our lives, to try to be open to what he's doing in our lives, to try not to pose obstacles to what he's doing in our lives. That's, those are all good ways to describe it, but to say that it's to us or it's for us to kind of invent our own spiritual lives, I think that's just a recipe for disaster. So, yeah, I think it's important to kind of lead with this sense that in order to you know, follow the Lord Jesus, to a certain degree or extent, you kind of have to give up which is to say give up on yourself, on your self-made man ibness. There you go. That's a, that's a noun. Cheers. There you go. Praise be to God. We're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of uh, conforming the mind to reality. That's very interesting. I mentioned there for just a, a side comment. But we'll be right back with more after this. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Who are the ten most well-known preachers in America? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Here's the list. Copeland, Osteen, Benny Hinn, Joyce Myers, T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, Andy Stanley, Robert Jeffers, Rick Warren, Alistair Begg, John MacArthur. Well, secondly, all these pastors say the same thing on Sunday morning, which is, turn with me in your Bible. Well, then how's the harmony regarding, say, eternal security, disagreement, present-day ministry of the Holy Spirit, Disagreement. Relationship of baptism to salvation. Disagreement. Church government. Disagreement. Life beginning at conception until natural death. Disagreement. And eschatology. Disagreement. So what's going on here? Well, if you are someone who says, all I need is the word of God, brother, because the Bible is going to give me everything I need to live out the Jesus life. Okay. Hope you've already ditched your favorite blogger, your favorite preacher, your favorite podcaster, and most of all, your religious Google searches. Well, speaking of Google searches, I do request one last Google search for you. Magisterium. I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. I love the shows with the Catholic apologist. I love the shows with the sort of day-to-day -day psychologist, Greg and Lisa Popchek. I love hearing not just of other people's problems who call in, but I love getting the Catholic take on how to deal with day-to-day -day reality. The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Welcome back to the Catholic Drive Time Show. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be here with you today. Praise be to God. You know, joining us right now is Father Gregory Pine. He's a Dominican with the province of St. Joseph. And we're discussing his book on prudence. It's very excellent. And uh, before we went to break, 
he had just casually mentioned uh, it wasn't even the main point there, but he casually mentioned something about you know being sad, and sometimes the right reaction is well, you should be sad and anxious because things are sad and anxious. And immediately I was thinking, I'm currently reading uh, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and he talks about this as, a, as an error of today, where man kind of has this problem where instead of conforming the mind to reality, we're trying to conform reality to the mind. And so I really thought about that in relation to being sad and anxious. Because sometimes we are sad and anxious and we're trying to say, okay, I shouldn't be this way, so I'm just going to pretend that I'm not or I'm going to uh, act as though the world is everything's fine or I'm going to bury my head in the sand and pretend like nothing's happening. And I think this is a, a serious problem that we have that can only cause further problems down the road when we don't address it. Uh, good morning to you, Father Pine. Uh, what say you about that idea? Yeah, I think... Um... I don't want to, you know, be the apostle of sadness, as it were, <laughs> or um, to argue for, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, to like enshrine sadness as an integral feature of our Christian life. But but I do think it's it's not insignificant. Like Christ was sad. Behold, my soul is troubled now. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. No, for it was for this hour that I have come. Father, glorify thy name. Um, so I think that, you know, in our experience of difficulty, whether it be sadness or anxiety or loneliness or whatever. Um, the point is that, you know, Christ comes to meet us, right? He doesn't banish those experiences so much as fill them with his, with his presence. And it's often in the midst of those that we find a certain grace, which expands our capacity to know the Lord and love the Lord um, and to experience his divine life more richly. Like I just think about like the suffering of injustice, for instance, I'm sure everyone's had the experience of suffering some injustice, whether it be small or big, you were suspected of a thing that you didn't do, or you were treated in a way that you didn't merit, or dot, 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 you know, you can fill in the blank. Now in that experience, many of us try to one, justify ourselves or rationalize or vindicate or prove others wrong or make known to all those who are on our immediate company that it was, you know, we, we do whatever we want. But I think there's a simple invitation often in those moments to just unite our injustice with the injustice that our Lord suffered. There's a Dominican saint, St. Peter of Verona, who you know, was accused unjustly of having broken the vow of chastity, but it turns out he was just actually conversing with angels in his cell. Um, so at one point he was praying before the crucifix, and he asked the Lord, you know, what have I done to deserve this? To which our Lord responds, Peter, what have I done to deserve this? <laughs> um, it's kind of like, you know, the book of Job, where... You know, Job asks questions of the Lord for something like 37 chapters, and when the Lord shows up in chapter 38, it's to ask more questions, deeper questions. And it's not because the Lord is a cheeky psychologist who wants to undermine all of our, you know, certainties or destabilize all of our commitments, but it's because he wants to draw us into a relationship. He wants to ennoble us through living contact with him. Like, the point isn't all right, input trauma, output life lesson, and we just accumulate all kinds of grace and virtue points over the course of a life. Now, the point is intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're going to meet him, you know, most intimately, you will have to meet him where he is most vulnerable, and that's in suffering. Um, so, yes, yeah, I think that's, that's one of the ways in which this book differs from a self-help book is, I think a self-help book is tempted by the response that most of our human problems can be solved. It's just a matter of method or structure or discipline. Whereas I just don't think that all of our human problems can be solved, but I think they can be suffered well because they can be suffered in union with Christ. Amen. 
Amen. You know, it's funny you were talking about is like uh, our Lord tells <laughs> says, uh, what have I done to do this? And I, I just can't help but remember that there's a meme of uh, of the passion of Christ whenever uh, Mel Gibson is sitting in his director's chair giving directions to Jim Caviezel, who is, of course, our Lord. And he's uh, just been scourged at the pillar, so he has all the makeup on, the, the plastic on him, so he looks like he just got destroyed utterly. And it's uh, Mel Gibson pointing at him and giving him direction. And uh, someone put a, made a meme and says, me trying to explain to uh, God why, why I have so many problems. Uh, and it just cracks me <laughs> up because I'm like, yep, that's, <laughs> there it is right there. Uh, but it's very funny. Let's transition over to the topic of grace, uh, virtue, and the gifts. Because we ha- kind of don't have a understanding of these things anymore. These things are not taught. I, I didn't learn about the virtues until I was in philosophy in college. And if that's the case, then most people who never study philosophy probably never learn about the virtues. Uh, so let's start there. Uh, let's start with grace. Grace, uh, tell me about it. We use that term all the time, but what do we mean when we say it? Yes, yeah, so grace is just a, a created participation in the divine life. Basically, grace is the currency of salvation, and God doesn't give us some some third thing as if he were to accumulate, you know, some kind of points or some kind of whatever it might be. I don't know actually how to describe it otherwise, um, and then allocate that to us as he sees fit. No, he just gives us himself. But the thing is that God is uncreated. And so we as creatures can't share in his uncreated life except by some mediation, except by some condescension on his part. And that's just what grace is. So it's God's way of sharing himself uh, to those creatures who are capable of it, namely human beings and angels. And it's like a habit of the whole soul. So it's like spiritual health in effect. And it gives us a kind of second nature. So that way it becomes customary to us to live in this superhuman register, the supernatural register, uh, so that we can actually, um, yeah, like make acts as it were, or make decisions which have God for their end or God for their inspiration or God for their very logic. And that gives us to uh, the question of the virtues, because of course you have your, your natural virtues, uh, but then you have your infused virtues, um, the theological virtues, and that always kind of, kind of confused me a little bit. Uh, we say, okay, you have faith, hope, and charity, but it, it would seem as though you can work to have greater faith, hope, and charity. Uh, but according to the church teaching, they are infused, and you can't uh, you can't create those virtues within yourself. Uh, so, what do we mean when we talk about the the virtues, both infused and natural? Yes. Yeah, so. This is a big debate in Catholic theology, which is probably not of interest to most of you listeners. Um, But without getting into too many nerdy details, basic idea is that certain virtues are from God uh, directly in the sense that, like you said, they're infused. And this is true of faith, hope, and charity. uh, But it's also true if there are certain infused kind of versions of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance and the virtues that go with them. And you get these at baptism. So God gives them as if by a gift, but then you can subsequently use them, right? So you can take them for your own. You can appropriate them. You can, um, you know, act out of them because they've been genuinely given to you for your use. And when you do that, you can merit an increase in those things. But the problem is, it's not a problem. It's a good problem to have, um, that you can't merit that increase as if to say, all right, I perform one 
you know, charitable act. And then it's due to me to get another 3.5 charity points. No, that's not really it. I mean, God gives as he sees fit according to his divine wisdom and with his divine generosity. But uh, it's his to give because it pertains to him by right. And it's something that is accorded to us as a kind of, not concession, I suppose that's too strong of a word, but as a kind of, yeah, gratuity. And then we have these acquired virtues, which are the types of things which we work on, and in working on them, we perfect the exercise of them. So this would be like the way that the pagans would describe virtue, and here I'm thinking of like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. There's the sense that by a repetition of a virtuous action, you become more and more stabilized or made more and more permanent in that disposition such that it's a virtue yeah and uh speaking of cicero you we there's there's a huge rise right now in devotion i i want to say i don't even want to use the word devotion but yeah. it kind of is devotion uh devotion to cicero among seculars and and there's there's some good there but there's also something that's that's uh not the fullness of the truth because you briefly talk about what the what the thing what the attraction is from Cicero and what he gets right what he gets wrong. I think a lot of people are attracted to things which are like Christianity but not yet Christianity because there's a kind of radiance to the truth and they're drawn by the truth but they find Christianity um, insupportable because it would mean humbling themselves and passing beneath the low lintel uh, of the incarnation and so I I, I suspect that. You know, Cicero is a desirable option because a lot of what we have uh, as part of a kind of Christian ethic and Christian worldview is there in germ, you know, or there in seed. Um, so, you know, Cicero enunciates a kind of taxonomy of the virtues, and he does so in orderly fashion. He's one of the great Stoics. So like Cicero and Seneca and Marcus Aurelius are the ones that you hear of most often. Yes, And they encourage a kind of self-discipline or a self-mastery, which would have the human person transcend the what vagaries and depredations of time and fate. So that way we don't feel so much shipwrecked and stormed to toss by all the eventualities of human life, but kind of abide more stably, more calmly, more serenely uh, in the true and the good. And so I could see people being attracted to Cicero just because they observe the modern world and see what a dumpster fire it is. And then they want to reconstitute a bit of sanity in their own lives. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Father Gregory. Uh, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about prudence finally. You're like, okay, this is supposed to be a topic on prudence, and I don't remember hearing that word come up. So when we come <laughs> back, we're actually going to be talking about prudence now. We set up the stage, and now's the time to explain what we mean. We'll be right back with more in just one moment. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Which of these is the most difficult for you to objectively believe? Jonah lived in a whale? Moses heard God's voice in a bush? Peter's authoritative declarations would be backed by heaven? Or that Daniel survived the flames of fire? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, the results. Most difficult was Jonah, then Daniel, then Moses. The easiest was Peter receiving authority to grant forgiveness. Secondly, the early church was tough. You see, that authority granted to Peter could put one out of the 
church due to sin, and that same authority was installed to bring one back into the church through personal confession. We understand that reconciliation with the church is inseparable from reconciliation with God. And thirdly, our Bibles are filled with promises, but this promise was to Peter, the apostles, and the generational successors of Peter known as the Catholic bishops. So here's an idea. Take a drive down your street, look up at a Catholic church, and just know this for a fact. That priest inside that church was ordained straight down through the lineage of St. Peter. Hey, Donnie, who were the first two people God created? Adam and Eve. There you go. And what did we inherit from them? Original sin. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Praise be to God. It's so good to be here today. It's always good to be here on Catholic Radio. We're joined right now by Father Gregory Pine. He is a Dominican friar with the Eastern Province, the province of St. Joseph. We're talking about his book on prudence. And the last two segments, we were talking a lot about virtues, a lot about happiness, a lot about the end of man. But we didn't really get into the topic of the name of the book, Prudence. So now I think it's a time to get into that. Now, on uh, page 61, he gives a definition of prudence uh, by Joseph Pieper on his book, The Four Cardinal Virtues. And let me read it to you. He says, in colloquial use, prudence always carries the connotation of timorous, small-minded self-preservation of a rather selfish concern about oneself. A prudent man is thought to be one who avoids the embarrassing situation of having to be brave. The prudent man is the clever tactician who contrives to escape personal commitment. Those who shun danger are wont to account for their attitudes by appealing to the necessity for prudence. And I this was a chuckling when I read this because I'm thinking this is exactly right. This is 99% of people understanding of prudence. And really, it's I hear it all the time. I say, why didn't you do this courageous thing? Well, I had to be prudent. Amen. So I couldn't do it. And so I am like, mm, this, I don't know how, how right that is. Uh, Father Gregory Pine, thank you for joining us. Uh, tell me about this passage from Joseph Pieper. Uh, yeah, so he goes on to describe what prudence is, in fact, by comparison with or by contrariety to what he describes there. And um, if you, you know, like the way that St. Thomas talks about prudence, he breaks it up into discrete parts that when taken together make up the virtue. And one of them is called caution. And what you have there is basically a description of caution. So caution is one part of prudence, but it is not the whole of prudence. And I think that in the 20th and 21st century, we have just effectively reduced prudence to caution. But, and as the title of the book would give one to believe, uh, prudence is not so much about reducing all of our potentially dangerous ventures to non-ventures because of a spirit of hypercaution, uh, but it's to engage those things which correspond to our good, to do so confidently and to do so boldly. So like St. Thomas will describe how prudence has you consult your memory. It has you consult those who are wiser or older, or, you know, who have uh, more profound experience of the concern thing. But it's also, you know, like reasonable. It's understanding. It's shrewd. It has foresight. It, you know, it's circumspect in X, Y, and Z ways. Uh, but, but effectively, prudence is what engages you with your real life 
It kind of weds you to the concrete circumstances. It helps you to acknowledge the fact that my real life is here. It's to be had by going through. It's not to be had by going over, under, around, or behind. Um, and so in that sense, it goes far beyond the description that Pieper gives. And what about the the virtue of wisdom, or maybe I guess it's more rightly referred to as a gift of wisdom? Uh, how is this similar or different from prudence? Yes, yeah, so when St. Augustine reads the gospel, he does this association between the seven invocations or petitions of the Our Father, the seven principal virtues, which we've listed previously, um, the seven Beatitudes, he sees the eighth Beatitude as a kind of reiteration of or summary of those that have gone before, and then the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are listed for us in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 3. So the like the virtues are paired with certain gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit that pertains to prudence is called counsel. So with prudence, you're kind of consulting your reasons, the reasons of those with whom you seek uh, to make this decision. Uh, but in counsel, you gain access to God's reasons. Uh, so that would be the, the gift of the Holy Spirit that's most pertinent to the discussion. But then wisdom is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which perfects charity, uh, which seems strange because charity is a virtue of the will or the heart, whereas wisdom we associate with the mind or the intellect. Um, and so in this case, he draws a lot from the tradition coming from Pseudo-Dionysius, who's a 5th, 6th century Syriac monk writing in Greek. And he describes wisdom in one of his treatises as a kind of capacity to suffer divine things. So it gives you a hypersensitivity to the divine heart to speak in biblical terms, in somewhat allegorical terms. Uh, so that way, in your you know kind of consideration of the world and how you navigate it, your heart beats in time with that of God, and you can kind of abide more steadfastly at the center of his will for your life uh, because of this, this higher wisdom. So we'll talk about wisdom in a philosophical sense, you know, it's just a real capacity to, to reason through, but to kind of see the principles and the conclusions and the conclusions and the principles, or we'll talk about wisdom in a kind of theological sense. So like faith discourse is informed by a certain wisdom, but then we can also talk about wisdom in this highest uh, contemplative sense, right? Uh, which would, which would correspond to the highest exercise of the life of prayer. And so this kind of makes me think, because uh, I really like, you mentioned the, the title of your book a second ago, and yes, you're the, the, the full title is Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly, and immediately, you know, what comes to mind is I have this conversation more often than I'd like to, uh, than, than I'm comfortable with, where people will, will say things, and these are like normal people, not radical leftists, not uh, crazy people, but very normal people will say, well, you can't be certain of anything. And people come into a epistemic uh, para paralysis where they can't make choices. So choose confidently really struck me as something that, uh, that people struggle with today because they kind of have an idea that we can't be certain about our decisions. So really, we just go with whatever the wind blows us and whatever happens, happens instead of uh, taking hold and exercising our will directly. Uh, what do you think about this idea of epistemic, uh, or for people who don't know, for uh, thinking that we can't know anything. Yeah, I would say that there are different kinds of certainty on offer. Uh, there's demonstrative or speculative certainty, which is the kind of certainty that you have in mathematics. But whenever you involve matter, whenever you involve practicality, you're going to be dealing with a different kind of certainty, um, which we call like moral certainty or practical certainty. And there, what you're looking for is a decision which 
a virtuous person would undertake. You know, you're looking for a kind of activity which corresponds to a well-trained heart. And that's enough because in a lot of these situations, there isn't one right answer. There's a variety of good answers. And it's a matter of choosing one and choosing one well without worrying too terribly much about maximizing or optimizing the consequences because truth be told, we're not optimizer, maximizer robots. We're meant to live a life that's not so much far more complex, but just far more subtle, I think, or nuanced than one would be led to think were he to follow that course of action. So I think that this helps people to kind of unbind some of the shackles of analysis paralysis and say, listen, I'm not responsible for doing what is in reality the best possible, right? Because if you look at creation, God wasn't motivated by the best possible. He made some excellent things, which cannot be surpassed, like his Christ and his mother and created beatitude. But in our case, we could be better. He could have made us better. Um, and yet here we are. And it's not because we're necessarily failures. It's just because part of the drama of human life is to kind of sort through it in all of its kind of hilarity and living technicolor. Um, so I think that we're looking for a kind of moral certainty or practical certainty, and then we're content when we can find it. And so you mentioned the the manner in which people can make prudent decisions. You said we use our, our memory, understanding, our docility, our shrewdness, our reasoning, foresight, and circumspection. And those things, how do we, because most people may have never even considered, okay, how can I grow in prudence? How can I become a prudent man? So if someone asked you that, how would you say this is the manner, this is a, just like you would give someone a training exercise uh, to be able to, uh, to get fit? Uh, what is the training exercise to get prudent? Yeah, I mean, there are a variety of things that one could counsel, and part of it depends upon your own temperament. So if you tend to be hyper-cautious, it might mean kind of pushing yourself to be a little more bold. If you're a bit rash, it might mean tempering some of that rashness so that way you can be more reflective or more docile in certain situations. But I think there are a variety of ways in which, and I think a bit, just a big stress is to take decisions and to abide by them and then to reflect on them. So to kind of deepen within yourself an appreciation for your own moral agency rather than thinking about your life as just what, I don't know, random assemblage of unconnected choices or largely dictated by countervailing forces. No, it's like the Lord's given you your life. He's placed it in your hands and it's for you to make of it something beautiful. Uh, and so seek ways by which to, to deepen that hold. And you get this in the life of prayer, regular sacramental reception, a little bit of penance, for instance, really sharpens the mind and kind of trains the heart. Christian friendships are a great proving ground in which our choices are brought to bear in the lives of others and we see their practical consequences or, you know, X, Y, and Z, variety of other things. Thank you. Uh, yes, for sure. Uh, one last question, Father, before I let you go. The Here we have this uh, idea here of choosing boldly. And how do you, you conclude your book talking about the uh, actually making choices? Your, your title of one of your chapters is, Am I Bold? Um, and Am I Certain? We talked about certainty, but let's talk about uh, the last thing here as being bold by not so much, I guess I, I don't want to say not doubting yourself, but, but being confident and being bold in our decisions. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a line, I think it's from Ecclesiastes, that God makes all things beautiful in their time. And I think a lot of us wish that we were at the end so that we wouldn't have to deal with the difficulty of being on the way. But I think that we need be as bold as we are expected to be or as we are responsible for being at any given moment. St. Augustine has this prayer, which he repeats near the end of the confessions with frequency, God, give what you command and command what you will. So what does God will? Well, 
let's take a look at what he commands. And, you know, on that basis, we're going to see it in the very concrete details of what he has supplied us with, of what he has given. And so I think that our lives make known the will of God and that we can have a kind of boldness on the basis of that because we're not lacking something essential to our flourishing because our lives are the concrete fruit of his predestinating love. So working within that, you know, we can take steps to, you know, make all things beautiful in their time and to grow, to heal towards this place or towards this point where God would have us be uh, with a genuine liberty because he has really placed our lives in our hands. Amen. Thank you very much, Father. Uh, where can people get in touch with you? Where can people find more information? Uh, where can people get the book? Yes, yeah, so the book's available at osv.com or on Amazon. People can get in touch with me. My email address is online, so you just search it. You'll find it. And uh, people can follow up with different podcasts to which I contribute. So Pints with Aquinas is the one that most people know. Godsplaining is one that I do with four of the Dominican friars, which is a jam. It is a bop. And then a couple other, uh, so Catholic Classics with Ascension, and then the Thomistic Institute podcast, which is a ministry of our province. So you can find cool things on all four of those, you know, podcasts. For sure. Absolutely. And thank you, Father. Uh, can you leave us with your blessing? With pleasure. The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. May the Lord on whom you call and in whose mercy you hope graciously grant you peace, that persevering in holiness of life you may come to inherit his promised beatitude. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come down in you and remain with you forever. Thank you very much, Amen. Father. And that's going to do it for the first hour of Catholic Drive Time. Uh, stay with us for the next hour. We have much more for the Catholic Drive Time show. If you can't, we'll see you back here tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Central, 7 Eastern, across the Guadalupe Radio Network. God bless you, God love you, and we'll see you soon. When I was outside of the church, there was always an unsettled feeling. There was always a feeling of something missing and something not complete. The, the deal clincher is we found our way to our, our parish and we met just an incredible pastor. We learned things that we'd never been taught. Wouldn't be the person that I am without the church and without the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. I can't live without it. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, visit catholicscomehome.org. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. What does it take to constitute an actual church? Well, here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, a gathering of Christians is not automatically a church. Although Matthew 18 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst, that is not a text to be interpreted as a premise for a church. That's a requirement to legitimize an accusation. Secondly, Catholic teaching. Christ established and sustains the church as both a mystical community and a visible organization with hierarchy and jurisdiction. And thirdly, my take. Eventually, you have to decide what one item is absolutely essential for our Lord to say, that's my church. So is it a church if there's simply a common belief in the Bible or perhaps just a doctrinal agreement? Is it compliance to the Apostles' Creed? Could it be the stamp of approval from a denomination? Maybe an ordained pastor makes it officially a church. So you know that place you've been attending every Sunday morning at 10 a.m.? Maybe it's not even a church. Maybe it's just a good, healthy hangout. Ooh. I've been listening to Guadalupe Radio for a couple years now, and I think it was a bumper sticker I saw on somebody's car one time, and it's a radio station that I don't have to be concerned about or worried about. When the kids and I are driving, I don't have to worry about inappropriate items. It's just the opposite. It's educational. I've learned so many different topics and on different subjects that I couldn't believe being a Catholic 
and being baptized as a child. There's so many things I didn't know, and now in these past couple years that I've been listening in, I've learned so much. Shining the light of truth on the path of salvation, this is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. KSHJ Houston. EWTN Global Catholic Radio presents The Seven Last Words of Christ with Bishop Robert Barron, introduced by Timothy Cardinal Dolan. Please kneel. We gather here on this Good Friday to keep vigil and pray with our Savior during the hours of his passion. May the time we spend this afternoon draw us closer to the suffering Christ. In order to maintain a reverent pace while praying together, we ask everyone to please pause at each slash mark. Lord Jesus, you ask us to carry our cross each day. We have not always followed your teachings, 
your way of life, and yet you love us without conditions. Today we come to you in our weakness. Give us courage to stand by you in your agony, now and whenever you share in that suffering enters our own lives. Help us to do the Father's will and make us selfless in our charity towards all. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, Unless you turn and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Lord, help us to follow you. Good Friday blessings to all of you, and welcome, welcome to St. Patrick's Cathedral for this traditional treore, three hour, three hours of prayer and union with Jesus in his passion and cross. Uh, during these three hours of prayer and meditation, the sacrament of penance will be available as well. Confessors are available at a confessional uh, in the back and also behind here, uh, there's two confessionals. You'd be welcome to avail yourself of the sacrament of penance. In a special way, not only do I welcome all of you, but a special word of welcome to uh, Cardinal Justin Regali, the Archbishop Emeritus of Philadelphia, who was with us last evening as preacher for the Liturgy of the Lord's Supper. And I'm especially grateful for the presence of Father Robert Barron, who is the preacher for the seven last words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father Barron, well known to many of you, a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago, and the um, the, uh, the one who uh, gave us the excellent uh, acclaimed Catholicism series that is now uh, sweeping the country, a great source of grace, mercy, and, and uh, evangelization. So, Father Barron, we especially welcome you and thank you for being with us to lead us in prayer for the seven last words. And a welcome as well to those who unite with us in prayer on radio and television. These three hours will conclude, obviously, at 3 o'clock. And at 3.30, we have the official liturgy of the church, the Passion, the liturgy of our Lord's Passion at 3.30, to which you're all welcome. Father Barron. Praise be Jesus Christ. Remnants, thank you so much for that kind welcome. And thank you for inviting me to give these... Um, talks on this very important moment of prayer. You know, yesterday I um, flew into New York. It was a day much like today, really bright, beautiful, clear. And the plane was flying into LaGuardia, so I came right up Manhattan Island. 
and um, looking down at the buildings and all standing out with such clarity. And what occurred to me was, you know, many people say New York is the capital of modern secularism, and that's true to some degree, I suppose. But whenever I look down on New York, I think of holy New York. I think, for example, of Thomas Merton, whose conversion commenced when he was just down Fifth Avenue at the old Scribner's bookstore, and he saw a book by the French philosopher Etienne Gilson. Merton bought that book, and it started the process by which he became a Catholic. He was, of course, baptized up in Morningside Heights, up at Corpus Christi Church. I think, too, of Rose Hawthorne, the daughter of the great Nathaniel Hawthorne, the American novelist. She began her saintly work among victims of cancer here in New York. I think, too, of Dorothy Day, who founded the first of the Catholic worker houses down in the Lower East Side. And, of course, I think of one of my great heroes. It's my privilege to be standing in his pulpit now. I'm talking about Archbishop Fulton Sheen, buried just a few yards from where I'm standing. And so it's really a privilege, Your Eminence. Thank you again for inviting me to this holy city of New York. Well, friends, we're going to be here for some time. And that, to me, is one of the great virtues of the Tre Ore prayer. We are such a go-go society. We're always moving somewhere, restless, uneasy. It's now time to sit. And in real time, to watch with the Lord Jesus Christ as he suffers and dies on the cross. So maybe put aside your restless thoughts. Put aside your preoccupations, your worries. And let's spend this good quality time with the Lord. What's going to happen, of course, is some preaching, some proclamation of the scripture, some beautiful music. Thomas Aquinas said that God's providence extends to particulars. A fancy way of saying that God is providentially present to every one of us here and now. God has brought everyone here to this place for a purpose. Maybe to hear something from my sermons. Maybe just to hear a word from scripture. Maybe something from one of the hymns. Let that wash over you during these three hours. Set aside your cares, anxieties, preoccupations. Let the Lord speak. Christ was high priest. He reconciled us to God. And that's why his cross is a great altar where a sacrifice took place. Christ is king the one who guides us to the Father. And that's why his cross is a great throne from which he reigns. But Christ was also prophet, the speaker of the divine truth. And that's why his cross is a pulpit from which a last great sermon went forth. The seven last words constitute that sermon. Let's now prayerfully attend to it. We invite you now to stand and join in singing Soul of My Savior.
first word. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him and the criminals there, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.
Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Friends, how central to the life and ministry of Jesus was forgiveness. His words to the paralyzed man, who symbolizes all of us paralyzed by sin. My son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. At the very heart of the great prayer he taught us, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgiveness was central to Jesus' preaching and ministry. Here's the one thing I want you to take from this particular sermon. Forgiveness is not primarily an internal act, not a mere intention or velleity. Forgiveness is an act. The Bible sees sin as a great swamp. It's a great morass. It's a great net or network in which we find ourselves trapped. You're unkind to me, so I'll be unkind to you which awakens in you an answering unkindness, which awakens in me an answering cruelty. On and on it goes, across space and time. Injustice awakens answering injustice. Violence awakens counter-violence. And before you know it, we find ourselves stuck, trapped. What's forgiveness? Not a mere intention. Forgiveness is a way out. Forgiveness is a path forward. Now, to grasp this, I think it's very helpful to look at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And we find those still startling, challenging words. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who maltreat you. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and give them the other. Someone takes you to trial for your coat, give them your cloak as well. Love your enemies. Do you see how that little line shows the way out? You become my enemy through some act of cruelty or violence or injustice. What's the natural response? I will be cruel and unjust to you. It is only when we muster the courage and the capacity to love our enemies that we can break that cycle. Attend to, to the famous examples that Jesus gives. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, what should you do? Well, you know, in the face of violence or injustice, there are two classical responses, aren't there? true in the animal kingdom as well as in the human society. The two responses are fight or flight. Someone strikes you, well, fight back. Fight fire with fire, making the whole world hotter. Gandhi said that, an eye for an eye, yes, making the whole world blind. We know that in the long run, answering violence with violence tends not to solve the problem. So the second great response is flight. Someone's cruel, unjust to you, well, run away, acquiesce, give in. Does that solve the problem? No, it just confirms the violent person or institution in its violence. 
What's Jesus giving us here? He's giving us a way out. A third way, if you want. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, well, see, in his time, you wouldn't have used your left hand for any kind of interaction. It was unclean. Therefore, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, it means they're hitting you like this, with the back of their hand. It was a sign of contempt, the way you treat a slave or an inferior. Someone does that to you, what should you do? Fight back? No. Run away? Uh-uh. Jesus says, stand your ground and turn the other cheek. What are you doing thereby? You, you are signaling to that person that you refuse to cooperate with the world he's living in. You refuse to be treated that way again. You mirror back to the violent person his violence, hoping thereby to lure him into a new spiritual and moral space. Let me give you an example. Bishop Tutu of South Africa, before he was a famous figure, he was a simple priest, was making his way along a raised wooden platform over the muddy uh, sidewalk. And he came face to face with a white man who was a racist. Broadly, he said, I do. <laughs> That's turning the other cheek. Not fighting back, but not running. But rather in this humorous, provocative way, mirroring back to that person his violence. Another example from Mother Teresa, I saw some of her sisters here in the front. Famous story about Mother Teresa finding an abandoned, starving child in the streets of Calcutta. Took her by the hand, brought her to a baker's shop, and begged for some bread. The baker spat full in Mother Teresa's face. At which point the saint said, thank you for that gift for me, now perhaps something for the child. Fighting back? No. But not running away. Rather, mirroring back to that violent person his violence, hoping thereby to draw him into a new space. You know who knew this principle and practiced it brilliantly was John Paul II. I remember very vividly the days when he arrived in Poland. Many of us were afraid of World War III breaking out. John Paul went into the belly of the beast, confronted this tyrannical government, but didn't fight it with the weapons of the world. But by God, he didn't run. What did he do? He stood his ground and talked about God and talked about creation, human dignity, human freedom, human rights. And as he did, you remember that first time he visited Warsaw, June of 1979, as he did, the crowds began to chant, we want God. We want God. We want God. And the chant went on, they say, for 15 minutes. Can you imagine almost a million people chanting, we want God? And they say what John Paul did during that chant was, he simply turned to the Polish government who were sitting behind him, as if to say, you're finished. <laughs> he didn't fight them, but by God, he didn't run. 
Rather, he mirrored back to them their injustice, mirrored back to them their violence. Do you see, hoping to draw them into a new spiritual space. Someone told me when I was a kid, back in the 1970s, that the Soviet Union would collapse with barely a shot being fired, and one of the main protagonists would be the Pope of Rome. I would think you're in a fantasy world. That's exactly what happened, though. Peter Moran, along with Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, said, it's time that we blow up some of the dynamite of the church. Dunamis, Paul's word, means power. Power. What's the power? Not worldly power, but the power of forgiving love, which can indeed change lives and can change whole societies. We've seen it happen. You know, a few years ago, in the seminary where I teach, a student told me about a martial art called Aikido. This kid was trained in the martial arts, and Aikido is a martial art. It's an art of war. But the purpose of Aikido is not to engage the opponent directly, fighting fire with fire. Rather, in Aikido, you use the momentum and violence of your opponent against him. So as he comes at you, you definitely get out of the way, send him flying. You definitely move out of the way as he comes with his full weight against you. He told me the purpose of Aikido is not to harm or kill your opponent. The purpose is to leave your opponent laughing on the ground, realizing he can't possibly defeat you. Do you see how turning the other cheek, as I've been describing it, forgiveness in this sense, is a kind of Aikido. It's a way of responding to the violence of the world that actually extricates us from the morass of sin actually is a way out of the great swamp of violence meeting counter-violence. Now, now, think of that cross of Jesus Christ. Thomas Aquinas said, the purest exemplification of the Beatitudes is the cross. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who maltreat you. Where do we see that? We see it precisely in the cross of Jesus. And we hear it in those magnificent words, Father, forgive them. What is that? It's not fighting fire with fire, but by God, it's not running. Do you see how the cross of Jesus is a kind of great act of Aikido? As he allows all of the darkness of the world to wash over him, and then be swallowed up in the ever greater divine mercy. Not fighting fire with fire, making the whole world hotter. Not an eye for an eye, making the whole world blind. But swallowing up all the dysfunction evil of the world precisely through the divine forgiveness. That's why we say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who, listen, takes away the sin of the world. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.
Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus every knee must bow and Tom confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Almighty and everlasting God, you willed that our Savior should become man and undergo the torment of the cross as an example of humility for all humanity. Grant that we may follow in his suffering as to share in his glorious resurrection. We ask this through the same Christ our Lord. Won't you please stand and sing, O Sacred Head Surrounded.
the second word. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. And indeed, we have been condemned justly, for the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise.
Amen. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, what is it about the words of the good thief that are so moving to us? Jesus, remember me. And what's so powerful about this response? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Dismas is the name, of course, the tradition gives to the good thief. We know almost nothing about him. But we know the essentials. He realized he was a sinner, and he reached out to Jesus. And fellow sinners, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Chesterton said, there are saints in my religion. That just means people that know they are sinners. Dismas would never be tempted to say, I'm okay and you're okay, would he? He knows there's something very wrong with him. Remember the song was out a couple years ago by Christina Aguilera? Pretty melody, but she says in that song, I am beautiful in every single way, and your words can't get me down. Well, that's the language of modern, you know, sort of self-esteem culture, but it's not the language of the Bible. Rather, those who are directed toward the light, John the Cross said that, are more, not less aware of their sins. That's why this man, so close to Jesus, in such proximity to him, realizes that he's a sinner. Very good. And he reaches out to the right source. Now, here's the thing, though, that's very peculiar. Here's a man who's being crucified. Whom does he reach out to? Another man being crucified. I mean, doesn't the other thief seem to have it more correct? I mean, hey, if you're the son of God, save yourself and us. But the good thief being crucified reaches out to another man being crucified who says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. Friends, here's the high paradox of the Christian faith. Thomas Aquinas said, happiness, now please put this on your screensaver, put it up on your refrigerator, any place you'd see it, take it to the bank spiritually. Thomas Aquinas said, you want to be happy, here's the formula. Despise what Jesus despised on the cross and love what Jesus loved on the cross, you'll be happy. Now, take my word for it here, I'll try to explain this, but I think you can take that right to the bank. All kinds of self-help books, aren't there, about what makes us happy. You can find a thousand of them at Barnes & Noble. Throw them all away. Here's what makes you happy. Despise what Jesus despised on the cross. Love what he loved on the cross. You'll be happy. Now, how do we make sense of that? Thomas Aquinas said, following St. Augustine, we are all wired for God. That's true of everybody in this room. It's true of all the new atheists. It's true of people that deny God explicitly. Like it or not, we are wired for God because we are wired for ultimate happiness. Honestly, fellow sinners, does anything in this world make you finally happy? We all know the answer to that question. But Aquinas said, in our sin, we make four great mistakes. We search for God, for ultimate happiness, in four bad places. In wealth, in pleasure, in power, 
and in honor. I found dealing with people over the years, dealing with my own weak soul, there's no exception to that. What we tend to look for as a substitute for God are wealth, pleasure, power, or honor. Anything wrong with wealth? No, not in itself. But wealth isn't God. And therefore, what happens? When you hook your infinite desire for God onto wealth, you will become, in short order, dissatisfied and addicted. You know, the old spiritual masters use that word concupiscence, meaning errant desire. But I think a very legitimate rendering of concupiscence in our time would be addiction. I've hooked my desire for God onto wealth, so what do I do? I strive and strive and strive for wealth. And let's say my great dream comes true. I have my first million by 30. What does that produce? A buzz. It produces a great delight. What happens to that buzz, though? Talk to anyone addicted to, to alcohol or to drugs, pornography. What happens? That buzz wears off. Because we're not wired for wealth, we're wired for God. Now what do I do? Now I start striving harder, harder, harder to get more wealth. And maybe by 40 I make my first 10 million, which produces a buzz, which lasts a shorter time. And now I panic. And I find myself moving obsessively and addictively around that goal of wealth. About 10 years ago, I was working at a parish on the North Shore. That's uh, the suburbs north of Chicago, the wealthiest area of Chicago. I finished Mass, I was still in the rectory, and the knock came to the door. And there appeared a man, typical North Shore gentleman, about 45, well-dressed, beautifully coiffed, well-spoken, well-educated. Father, could we talk? I said, sure. He sat down and he said, Father, all my dreams have come true. And so summoning all my training in psychology and theology, and I said, great. <laughs> and then he said, and I'm miserable. Terrific, terrific bit of self-diagnosis. I said, what were your dreams? They were all the North Shore dreams. The first million by 30, head of my company by 40, 10 million by 50. And he had them all. He had the wealth, the home, the power he wanted. And he was miserable. And I told him why. I said, you're not wired for that. You're wired for God. Wealth is fine in itself, but it's not God. And when you make it God, you become miserable and addicted. What's the second great substitute? Pleasure. Anything wrong with pleasure? No. Catholics like pleasure. Pleasure of food and drink and sex and sensuality. Hilaire Belloc said, wherever the Catholic sun does shine, there's music and laughter and good red wine. That's Catholicism. We, we're not puritanical. In fact, I always find puritanism is a sign of spiritual corruption. We're not dualists. We're not puritans. But, but, pleasure isn't God. When I turn it into God, in short order, I become addicted to it. Now, again, talk to anybody who's fallen into an addiction to alcohol or to drugs 
or to pornography or to sex. What's happened there is a finite good, namely pleasure, has been turned into God. And that turns me, in short order, into an addict. What's the third one? Power. Is power good? Yes, God's described as all-powerful, so power can't be bad in itself. Power rightly exercised in church and society, in families, is a good thing. But listen now, power isn't God. When I turn into God, in short order, I become addicted to it. Remember the Lord of the Rings films we all watched, what, 10 years ago now? What's the ring? It's a ring of power, isn't it? I mean, Tolkien intuited that with great clarity. The most seductive temptation is the temptation toward power. Do you remember the scene of all three movies, you know, which features great battles and orcs and all sorts of wicked things, but you know what scene I found most frightening in The Lord of the Rings? In the very beginning when Gandalf, the great wizard, great positive figure, right, comes to the home of Bilbo, who had the ring, and Gandalf, the great Gandalf, the good Gandalf, sees the ring of power. And there's this, there's this frightening moment when you can see in his eyes that he's attracted to it. And you think, oh gosh, if Gandalf goes bad, we're in serious trouble. But even the great Gandalf, and of course at the climax of that movie, Frodo, who was the courageous bearer of the ring, who resisted its temptation, its lure, at the end even Frodo gives in. You know, a few years ago, my nephew was now 12, it must have been eight or nine years ago, he's a little guy, and our whole family was out at Mundelein Seminary where I teach for 4th of July. And at a certain point, we all had to cross the street to get to the ball field. And so people are saying, oh, be careful, be careful, it might be a car coming. Well, Drew, who was three or four at the time, there was one person in that group he could possibly boss around. His little sister, Lauren, who was about two. And what did I see Drew doing? But turning to Lauren with great energy. Don't, don't watch it, don't go. And I thought the one person he could boss around, he did. Power, from the time we're little till the time we're old, is a great seductive thing. That's why, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, the three great temptations the devil gives to Christ. What's the highest one? The temptation to power. You turn power into God, you become addicted to it in short order. Last one, honor. There are many people that they don't really care that much about wealth, pleasure, or power. They can live without those. They've got those in the right order. But they are addicted to honor. Titles, rewards, being recognized, the esteem of others. When I was a little kid, I would bring my papers into my father. My father was a wonderful man. And I'd show him my papers and my tests with their, you know, good grades on them. And he said, kiddo, that's terrific. I'm so proud of you. Well, that gave me a buzz, you know, as it does. We like to be honored. And so I'd go back to school and I'd strive and work and work to get those grades so I could get the honor from my father. And he would dutifully give it to me year in and year out. But of course, in time, that buzz wore off. I thought, I need to be honored by more people than my dad. I mean, he's, he's my father. He'll honor me anyway. So I better get my high school teachers, I better get my college professors, 
I'll even go across the ocean to Paris and get my doctoral teachers to honor me. I was ordained about two years maybe, and I had just said mass, delivered a homily, which I thought was pretty good, and I'm giving out communion to the people, body of Christ, body of Christ. And a man came up to me and I said, the body of Christ, and he said, that was the worst sermon I ever heard. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're an honor junkie, that's a little difficult to take in, you know? Honor's good. Aquinas said honor is the flag of virtue. It's a good way to think about it, isn't it? That when you're honored, it's a flag that's meant to signal to others, oh look, there's something worth emulating. So honor is never for the honoree, it's for others. It's good perspective on it. So honor's not bad in itself, but it's not God. And when we turn it into God, we become, in short order, addicted to it. Now, remember Aquinas. You want to be happy? Despise what Jesus despised on the cross and love what he loved. What did he despise on the cross? Wealth. Jesus, naked, nailed to the cross, the end of his life. What does he have in terms of wealth? Nothing. He is detached from wealth. Pleasure, that's the good life. Jesus, the end of his life, is at the limit of physical, psychological, even spiritual suffering. Power? He has none of it. Nailed to the cross, he can't even move. Honor? They laugh at him. They spit at him as he dies nailed to an instrument of torture near the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Despise what he despised on the cross. In other words, be detached from it. Wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. And love what he loved. What did he love? Doing the will of his Father. And it was the very detachment from those four things that allowed him so fully to do the will of his Father. Today, today, he says to Dismas, you'll be with me in paradise. Here, friends, again, it's the high paradox of our faith. But Thomas Aquinas said it. Look at Christ crucified. Hold him right now in your mind's eye. And realize, though it, it runs counter to all of our expectations, there's a picture of someone in paradise. There's a picture of beatitude. Lord Jesus, on the night before you suffered, you said to your apostles, this is how all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. You brought good tidings to the poor. Let us be your messengers to the poor. You healed the sick. Let us bring them your help and consolation. Lovingly you call the children to you. May our example lead them to goodness and truth. You love the sinner even while hating the sin. Keep us from the harsh judgments of others. You have taken upon yourself our burdens. Give us the grace to bear the burdens of one another. Lord God, keep us in your love 
so that on the day of judgment we may come to you in joy. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Won't you please join in singing our holy Jesus. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold. KSHJ, Houston. 